The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Amen. If you would, turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. going to look this morning at verses 1 through 11 as we continue to study Luke's gospel. Luke writes, on, the, on a Sabbath while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them, at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. At the beginning of chapter 6 here, Luke records for us really the last two in a series of, of encounters Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day. Back in chapter 5, we looked at the, a couple of others that had already taken place. And Luke, there, there were certainly many more than the ones Luke has recorded here. We'll come back to this issue again later in the Gospel of Luke. But here, Luke has carefully selected a handful of specific incidents that he, that he sort of presents to Theophilus, the man to whom he's writing this book, and to us. And he selects them for a purpose, as we've talked about throughout. And here we come to really the last two of those encounters that he wants us to remember, encounters that he wants us to see, because there's something for us to learn here. There's something about Jesus that we need to see here, and there's something about us we need to see here. And so we're going to take these last two events sort of together this morning, Lord willing, in our time together. Uh, I want to uh, say right at the outset, we're going to do something a little different next week. Uh, as, I've, as I've sort of worked through this text in the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been thinking through the whole issue of the Sabbath and really 
how much we maybe have or have not thought about the Old Testament Sabbath and worship on the Lord's Day that we do today. Obviously, you are not worshiping on the Sabbath, nor am I, because if we were, we wouldn't be here today. We would be somewhere else yesterday, because yesterday was the Sabbath. Today is the Lord's Day. The Sabbath has always been on Saturday, and yet you and I don't worship on the Sabbath. We don't keep the Sabbath. And I wonder if we've ever really thought very critically about why is it that we don't keep the Sabbath? Do we have biblical justification for not keeping the Sabbath? Why is it that we worship on the Lord's Day? And how did that come about? And how can we have confidence that what we're doing is biblical and godly and good and right? And so there, uh, th this is a, an issue that for, for which there's been all sorts of controversy for generations and uh, a variety of different sort of ways of looking at it. And I uh, really think folks have not thought very critically of this. Um, let me just ask you a question. Uh, maybe you'll have the confidence or the, the, the lack of fear to answer. I hope you will this morning. How many of you really thought about that issue? Just tell me if you thought deeply about that issue for long in your life. Okay, some of you have thought about that issue. How many of you would like to know more about that issue? Okay, all right, good. Then come back next week. Those who don't want to hear about it, then go somewhere else. No, I'm just kidding. Don't come anyway. You need to re be reminded of it. But uh, I thought it would be well, it'd be well worth our time to take aside a, a Sunday and just go at that issue and that topic and, and, and ask and answer those questions and, and draw some conclusions. So that's what we'll do. So this morning we're going to focus on the narrative. Next week we'll come back to the whole issue of the Sabbath in general and, uh, and sort of tie all these strands together. So let's just dive right into the, uh, to the narrative as Luke gives it to us here. These two events happen. Luke doesn't give us a clear time frame, but both the other gospel writers who record these events put them in close proximity to one another uh, and, and give us a little more of an indication that these two events happened relatively close to one another in proximity, at least in time. And so these two things are sort of happening. And what we're seeing as Luke is giving this to us is we're seeing hostility building. We're seeing Jesus... He's confronting the hypocritical uh, religious system of Judaism, the apostate, rebellious uh, Jewish religious system that is developed by this time that is so far from God, it doesn't even know what it would look like to be godly, particularly in the leaders who lead it. And Jesus has been confronting this along and along. He stands and he lives and he breathes and he talks and he does things constantly that run contrary to what the religious leaders have taught and would do. And so this, this conflict has been sort of rubbing along and along. And now it sort of comes to a fevered pitch in these last two encounters that Luke gives us. And by the time we get to, the, to verse 11 of chapter 6, then what we've got now is an entrenched opposition to Jesus. We have a religious leadership that has cast their lot against him that has made a final decision for themselves that he absolutely has to be destroyed, that that is what has to happen here. And, and the rest of really the gospel is going to be leading us to how that plan gets executed when Jesus himself is executed. But it all begins really in these early encounters with religious leaders whose hearts get hardened because of these conflicts the truth is right literally in front of them in living color, and they absolutely refuse to see it. And they blindly embrace lies that make no sense when compared to the character of God. And yet that's what sin does to us. It blinds us to truth. It causes us 
to blindly embrace lies out of pride, out of rebellion, out of stubbornness, because we don't want to see ourselves as we really are for all sorts of motives. It's easy for us as we walk through this narrative to demonize these religious leaders, and they rightfully earn that sort of a response. But I want to challenge you as we walk through this to, to look at them pretty closely and to look at what they're saying and what they're doing and ask yourself the question that I've had to ask myself uh, as I've walked through this text. Do, do I see shadows of myself in them? Maybe I don't overtly oppose Christ like they did, but are there ways in which I shadow their behavior or their thought processes in my own walk with the Lord? Am I susceptible to the same kinds of blindness that they're susceptible to? It's a hard question to ask, but it's one that I think is needful. And I think it's one of the reasons why Luke gives us these encounters. So let's look at them. The first one we read in the first five verses, he gives us a scenario, and he tells us really right out of the chute in verse 1, the first three words, on a Sabbath. Well, that, that sets up the, the whole course here. Everything that's taking place here is getting ready to take place on the Sabbath. And that's going to be the dividing line. Conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees has been rising and rising and ongoing, and it's hitting a fever pitch. But what, what's getting ready to happen is Jesus is about to challenge their most sacred ritual, and that is keeping the Sabbath. If there's anything that defined Old Testament Judaism, apart from circumcision, Sabbath-keeping had to have been the highest thing. It was the thing that was most on the minds. It was the thing that was most taught on by the rabbis and by the religious leaders. And it was this whole system, oppressive system, of rule after rule after rule after rule after rule about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath that had been sort of uh, uh, smashed upon the people for generations. And if the religious leaders took pride in anything apart from circumcision, it was that they kept the Sabbath. And so anybody who challenged Sabbath-keeping was striking at the heart of the most precious thing to these religious leaders that they would defend to their death. And that's precisely the area to which Jesus comes in this event. It's a very simple narrative. You can imagine the scene in your mind. Jesus and his disciples are, are walking and it's on a Sabbath. Why were they walking? Because they didn't have a Honda or a Mitsubishi or a Toyota or a horse-drawn carriage or anything else. They're walking because that's how you got from place to place. And it just so happens that they're walking through a grain field. And it's on the Sabbath. And they're hungry. You can imagine walking long distances makes you hungry. They're walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. They get hungry. What, is, what do Jesus' disciples do? Well, they pick some grain. They're walking through a field. They see the grain. They pick some. They rub it in their hands, and they eat it. Why do they do that? Well, because they're hungry. The same reason you eat. That's what they did. And nothing particularly out of the ordinary about that. The only thing that's out of the ordinary about it is those first three words, that it happens on the Sabbath, and religious leaders, the Pharisees, happen to see it, and they pounce, they attack. Now, Luke doesn't tell us where the Pharisees came from, and I want to know this. I'm just trying to picture it in my head. Like, where did they come from? I mean, were, were they following Jesus and his disciples around? Where, I mean, were they, were they, like, lurking and creeping out in the grain field, just waiting to, like, pop out at any given moment? Did they pop out of a hole in the ground and say, gotcha? 
I don't know what these guys were doing. I think it's unlikely that they were visibly following them because I don't think the disciples would have probably done this right in their face, but maybe they did. But these guys, it should note at this point, have a way of popping up everywhere. And the reason they're popping up everywhere is because they're watching Jesus. They know who he is at this point. His reputation is spread, and they're feeling the threat that he brings to their power and to their system. And so they're paying close attention to what he's doing, and they're looking, as we find in this text, for any opportunity to discredit him and to smear his character. And so here they are, and on this particular Sabbath, they think they've got something. So they they pop up, and they ask the question to Jesus' disciples, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Why are you breaking the law? Now, it's important to note that it was not unlawful to eat grain in somebody else's field. That might surprise you, but that wasn't unlawful. It was fine. If you were walking along the road and you were walking through someone else's property and they had grain that they were, they were growing, you could legally grab a handful and eat it. That was perfectly fine. Deuteronomy chapter 23 uh, accounts for this. In Old Testament law, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you can eat your fill of, gra- your, your fill of grapes, as many as you wish. But you shall not put any in your bag. And if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put the sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Well, that seems pretty obvious, right? If you're hungry, legitimately hungry, and you're walking through a field, you can grab somebody else's stuff and you can eat and fill your belly. You can eat as much as you want until you're full. You just can't go harvest their stuff and put it in your bag and take it away. That seems like a pretty reasonable rule. Do you think it's a reasonable rule? Yeah, it's a reasonable rule. Well, that was the law. So it wasn't unlawful for them to do this. It wasn't unlawful to take the grain and to eat it because it didn't belong to them. That was perfectly fine. What made it unlawful in the eyes of the religious leaders is that they did this when? On a Sabbath. They did it on a Sabbath. And not to get too far into the weeds like we'll do next week, but Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, 10 commandments, you probably know these, This was one of them the Lord had established in the Mosaic Covenant. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, or to keep it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, that's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. So the Lord had established in Mosaic Law this command that You're to honor the Sabbath, and you're to keep it holy. You go to work six days, work as hard as you want, as many hours as you want. Do whatever you need to do in those six days. But on the seventh day, you're to not go to work. You're to not do what you do on those other six days. You're to honor the Sabbath. Now, God had established a pattern for this way back in creation, at least. A template, if you will, when the Lord created all that there is to be created, and he created created it all in how many days? Six days, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested, that's what we're told in the creation account. It's not because he was just plum tuckered out after all that work of creating. There was a reason why he did that. We'll explore that more next week. But the bottom line was, this is what the law stated. This is what God had said specifically, what's recorded in Exodus 20. You're to remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. You work six days on the seventh day. That's the Lord's day for you don't do your work on that day. This whole thing was meant by God to be a blessing to men. 
It was meant to be a blessing to people. It was meant to be a a wonderful opportunity, a built-in legal day for them to stay at home and to not go to work, to be able to rest, to be able to worship the Lord, to be able to focus on spiritual things. You know what it's like to go out and work during the week. Your life is busy if you go to work every week. You're busy. You're doing things. There's stuff happening. You're talking to people. You're sending emails. You're checking your text messages. You're doing the work that you do, and you're working, and you're running here, and you're running there, and you're coming home, and you're fixing dinner, and you're getting the kids to bed, and by the thing, next time you know it, it's 8, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, and you're exhausted, and you're ready to go to bed. And days can go by, and you're busy. And no thoughts of the Lord or anything spiritual really comes to your mind. Because busyness has a way of squeezing out spiritual reality and time for a focus on spiritual things. It's not just true in our world. It's always been true. And so God wanted to bless men and to give them an opportunity to to have a built-in day to do that. A built-in day to rest, a built-in day to worship, a built-in day to focus on him and on spiritual matters. It was really a godly hedge against sort of tyrannical employers who would otherwise just grind their workers into the dust seven days of the week. And so for the poor and for those who have to work to make a living, who are at the mercy of their employers, God graciously gives a Sabbath so that their employer can't make them work seven days a week, so that they can have opportunity to rest and to worship. It was meant to be a blessing. It was meant to be a, a godly head, hedge against human ambition. He knows the human heart and, and the, the profit motive that often drives, right? That would say, well, if I can make this much money in six days, how much money could I make if I worked seven days? And that temptation would drive ambition and drive us into a sinful place. And so God gives the Sabbath as a blessing, as a hedge against that. And so that's why he establishes it, at least in part. And so the big question, though, is, when we read Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, what precisely constitutes work? What constitutes work? That's the issue. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, by this point, were long, far, far removed, generations down the road from Exodus 20. They've now filled, literally, volumes and volumes and volumes of religious law books with things you can and cannot do on the Sabbath, with what precisely constitutes work then is now forbidden. And by this point, they've literally got dozens and dozens of volumes of these rules that that intruded into every little crack and cranny of any person's life. So much so that nobody could possibly know all the rules, much less keep all the rules. So the Sabbath, by this point, is not an experiential blessing to anybody. It's in fact the most oppressive day of the week because people lived in constant fear that they were breaking the rules. And so quite reasonably, they were glad when the Sabbath was over. But what constitutes work? That's where the issue comes in with Jesus and his disciples walking through the field. Because when the religious leaders, the Pharisees, see them doing this, they, they immediately go through the index of their mind of all the laws and all the things you can and can't do on the Sabbath that constitute work, and they immediately assess, wait a minute, you picked grain. That's harvesting, and harvesting is work. You can't do that on the Sabbath. Not only did you do that, but you rubbed it in your hands. That is technically threshing, and threshing is work, and you can't do that on the Sabbath. Furthermore, you, you sort of uh, blew away the chaff so you could get to the grain. You know, 
That is technically winnowing, which is work, and you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. And so they confront these men. Now you and I look at this, and I think we all are in agreement that we can look and say these men are not farmers. They weren't harvesting, they weren't threshing, and they weren't winnowing. They were simply eating because they were hungry. You and I can see that relatively clearly, but to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they absolutely were blind to that truth. All they could see is that the rules were being broken, and in their minds, they had lost the ability to tell the difference between what God had established as law and their own man-made traditions. They had conflated all that together and assumed it was all God's law and defended it as though it had come straight out of God's mouth. So they say, you're not doing what's, why is it that you're doing what's not lawful? It's an important distinction to ask right here. Whose law is being violated here? Whose law is being violated? It's not God's law. All God clearly said was don't do work on the Sabbath. Now what's included in that is sort of debatable. We could sort of parse that out. But one thing that's crystal clear is God at least means don't work like you do every other day of the week. Can we agree on that? Six days you work, seventh day don't work. The clear intention, at least at the very baseline, is whatever you're doing on those other days for work, for employment, you shut that down on the seventh day. Are the disciples violating that in this case? Are they farmers who work? No, they're not. And no, they don't. One could argue that that's really all that God intended with the Sabbath law. Maybe you see that differently. But they're not violating God's law. They're violating the Pharisees' man-made laws. The Pharisees' man-made laws. See, the Pharisees had assumed the authority to determine what God meant by saying don't work. They assumed that they had that authority to define that in every little detail, and that's precisely what they had done and codified into a man-made law, and they never one time considered, maybe we could be wrong. Maybe we're not right about this. There was no grace, and they were merciless in their enforcement of these rules. And I only point that out to simply to say, that is a problem that has not gone away with time. Today, there are an awful lot of people who still conflate these two things, who are still very blind to the distinction between what God has actually said and their own interpretations of what they think God meant by what he said. And it's still a problem that people conflate those two things and they take their own interpretations of what they have determined that God meant by what he said and then begin to enforce them upon everybody else as though they're God's laws spoken from the very mouth of God himself. And listen, if you've been in church very long, if you've ever been around the Christian church for very long, if you've studied theology very much, if that's important to you, you need to understand that there's a real risk that you'll do the same thing a real risk. As we study God's word as we ought to, as we work to gain some precision in our theological understanding, as we work to, to work ourselves through hard issues that, that godly people see differently and draw conclusions, it is very easy for us to assume that our conclusions are the only right ones and to insist that everybody else agree or they're a heretic. There's way too much of that going on today, frankly, by my estimation. 
let me just give you this, this, this sort of statement. We should strive for theological precision as godly people. We should strive for that. We shouldn't be afraid to work through hard things that godly people see differently. We should work to come to our own conclusions so that we can own our faith and not borrow it from somebody else. But when we own it, we need to hold it with humility when we navigate with other people, it's particularly on things that are not crystal clear, that godly people see differently. We cannot be like these men, getting this confused. And this is the problem. The Pharisees have blown it. And they've made two, great, two, really, two really big errors here, two huge errors. They've completely lost the true intent of the Sabbath. They've lost it. They can't see it. They're blind to it. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, in Mark's account of this same thing, Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What is he saying there? He's reminding them, listen, the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing for men. In other words, it exists to bless men as a, as a good thing for them. Men don't exist just to keep your rules of the Sabbath. They missed that. They lost it. It was not meant to be a suffocating, oppressive day, and that's what they turned it into. They'd lost the true intent of the Sabbath altogether, and they had hijacked control of the Sabbath from God, and they had set themselves up as the only arbiters of what God meant. It's a height of arrogance, and Jesus is going to confront both. I love that they don't have the, the courage to confront Jesus himself, so they address his disciples. Don't you love that? Legalists like to do that kind of stuff. But even though they don't address him, he responds. And Jesus' response is fierce. You may not get it at a first reading, but it's fierce. The first thing he says to them is, have you not read? Have you not read? That's the first thing out of his mouth to them. I mean, he, he fires a stinging rebuke. These are the most well-studied men in all of Israel. Nobody has read the Old Testament more than these men. Nobody. And Jesus says to these well-read men, haven't you read? Have you not read? Haven't you read the Bible? Hey, you guys, you, you, you're the authorities here. You've set yourself up as the, as the rules, the rules, you know, judges here. Haven't you even read your Bible? When you read it, apparently you missed 1 Samuel chapter 21. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 21, we see a very unique event that took place. We have David, King David, who these religious leaders who revered above almost anyone. King David is running for his life from King Saul because King David is not yet actually anointed. He's anointed privately as king, but he's not actually the king because Saul is actually the king, and Saul's now trying to kill him. He's just found this out. So David and his companions have run, literally run for their dear lives. They didn't have time to even pack up provisions. They've run to get away from Saul's murderous uh, track to kill him. And they're starving. So what do they do? They come to a particular town and they run to the tabernacle and they talk to the priest, a man by the name of Ahimelech. And they ask him for bread to eat because they're starving. And Ahimelech says to them, well, here's the problem. They're, the only bread we've got in this place is the consecrated bread. The, the, the bread that's consecrated and holy to the Lord. Exodus chapter 25, it's set out that in the tabernacle, the priests every week baked particular bread, and they put it on a golden table, 
And that was consecrated bread that was holy to the Lord. It was a part of their ritualistic worship. And the way that worked is that bread sat there before the Lord as an offering until it was time to replace it. And when it was time to replace it, the priest would replace it. And only the priest could then eat the bread that was consecrated. Nobody else could eat it. Only the priests. So here's the dilemma. David and his companions are starving. They're running for their lives. They come into the temple and they need bread to eat. But the only bread is the consecrated bread. And they're not priests. So for them to eat the bread is unlawful. So what will Ahimelech do? Well, Ahimelech has more understanding of the nature of God than the Pharisees. And so what does Ahimelech do? Well, you can read it in 1 Samuel chapter 21 for yourself. I'm just going to tell you the end of it. He gives them the bread and they ate it. He gives them the bread and they ate it. Even though technically it wasn't lawful, when Ahimelech looked at the situation in front of him, he determined that David and his companions' human needs took priority over the ceremonial law. That's an important distinction. That the ceremonial law was never meant to deny human needs. He absolutely could not look at himself in the mirror and let men starve in his presence in order to just keep the rules of the law. In fact, giving them the bread, he determined, was the right thing to do, even though it wasn't the lawful thing to do. Because mercy and compassion and meeting people's needs took priority over their rigid obedience to the ceremonial law. These people had legitimate real needs, and those real human needs, and having mercy and having compassion and showing love to human beings trumped, if you will, rigid obedience to the law. And so Ahimelech gave him the food. Jesus says, haven't you read that? Don't you remember that? The law isn't everything. Mercy and compassion and human needs matter. And sometimes it's more important to do what somebody needs than to keep the law. At least the ceremonial law. Maybe you've been in dilemmas before. Where, where you've had this sort of thing flesh out in your life. I, I was reminded this week of a funny illustration of that in my own life. Um, we had a city group meeting last Friday night. Our city group met up for pizza. Had a big time. If you're not a part of a city group, you ought to be. Um, just, yeah, just throw that in there for you. Um, and we were talking about the issue of baptism. And uh, it reminded me of something that happened years ago, relatively early in, in ministry, when I was conducting a baptism in a, in a service, we had had a few different people to baptize on this particular day, and the last of which was an elderly lady who was in the early stages of dementia. And she, the way that manifests in her life at this point was just that it had removed the filters from her mouth. So whatever she thought, she would say, and which was fine. I understood how that worked out. But I, I'll never forget this baptism uh, really for my life. I'm standing in the baptistry just like one just like this one. I'm looking out at the congregation and and uh, this lady walked with a walker so I had some ladies that were kind of you know up in that area helping me to get her down into the water and then helping me get her back out. And it was it was uh, parts of it I can't share with you early on because she started saying things that just came to her mind and, and they were things that I wouldn't have wanted anyone in the congregation to hear. Let's just put it that way. And I had a microphone on, so the whole time I'm thinking, 
I don't know if people heard that. Did they hear that or did they not? And I'm looking at people trying to judge their faces. Did they hear what she just said? Um, and, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I've got to baptize this lady and I've got to get her out quick because this can go from bad to worse relatively quickly. So we finally get her, we finally get her into the water and I get her into position. <clears throat> and, and position means she's in the middle perpendicular to me. And I do like I do for every baptism. By the way, we're going to have baptism next week, so you need to come and celebrate that. Um, and and I, I go to baptize her, just like I've done many, many times before. And I go to baptize her and take her under the water. And when I get her, like, to here, the water is like to here on her face. It's like she hit a wall. Like, I, she wouldn't go any further. And so I tried, like, three times, trying to be careful because again she wasn't a young lady but every time it would just like get to here you know just get to here and and I was so I was confused I didn't know what was going on I'm like looking is there is there something underneath is there uh what I mean I, I literally did not know what to do and at some point it seemed like 10 minutes but it was probably 10 seconds I uh, I look and I finally realized that when she's going back for the baptism her left hand grabs that glass divider. And so when she would go down, that was as far as her arm would reach. She wasn't going any further. There was no way. There was no way. And so in that moment, I decided, well, what do I do? Do I pry her hand off of the glass? She's probably scared to death. She's going to drown. So in that moment, here's what I did. I splashed water over her face, and we called it good. And so technically that dear lady was baptized, baptized, Baptisterian or something. I don't know what she was, but she wasn't fully immersed, but she was close. So she was semi-immersed and then sprinkled is what she was. Uh, I fully believe in baptism by immersion. But there was a human need in that particular moment that needed to be met, and it was more important than getting her completely under the water. I'll never forget that as long as I live. There's way more to that story that I could maybe tell you in private, but at this point, people are visibly laughing out in the congregation. Let's just put it that way. Um, but Ahimelech understands. They're like, the law is important, but human needs matter. And this, there's no way that you can justify rigidly obeying a law and watching people starve in front of you when you literally have bread right there. Right? Phil Riken says this, the problem with the Pharisees was not simply that they were too strict their problem was they didn't understand the true inward purpose of the law, which demands love for God and love for our neighbor. And because they didn't understand this, they did not know how to apply the law properly the way Jesus did. In Matthew's account, he pointed, Jesus also pointed them to the fact that, hey, by the way, did you notice also in the Old Testament that the priests work every Sabbath and somehow they're not guilty of violating it? They're doing God's work on the Sabbath. Which should have been a clue, right? If priests can do God's work on the Sabbath, the Son of God ought to be able to do God's work on the Sabbath as well. But again, legalism blinds you to truth. The Sabbath was always intended to provide men opportunities to enhance love for God and to love their neighbors. That was the point of it. But that point had been lost. And Jesus says to them, really, a, a final truth torpedo, if you will. 
He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm going to skip that right now, and we're just going to come back to it next week. But then Luke records for us this other event, doesn't he? Shortly thereafter, on another Sabbath, he goes into a synagogue. He's teaching. He's teaching in the synagogue. That's what he always did on the synagogue. It was his normal operation. But the Pharisees, were told, are watching him. They're watching him. Now there's a clue for us, right? The Pharisees are in the house of worship on the day to worship, but are they worshiping? Just nod your head. I know you're still with me. No, they're not worshiping. What are they doing? They're surveilling Jesus. They're doing a recon mission in the church. They're watching to see if he's going to violate the Sabbath. They're not worshiping God. They're not loving his people. They're not teaching his word. They're watching Jesus. That's exactly what they're doing. They're conducting a surveillance operation in the synagogue on the Sabbath to see if he's going to heal. Now notice there's absolutely no question about whether or not he can heal. There's no question. They don't even challenge the fact that he has the ability to heal. That's been well established by now. And that's all they're doing. And Jesus knows their thoughts. What are their thoughts? What were they thinking? Well, they knew that their law said something about healing on the Sabbath. It was just like it wasn't lawful to pick grain and to rub it in your hands and to eat it on the Sabbath. It wasn't lawful also to heal somebody on the Sabbath. You could only keep somebody from dying if their life was in imminent danger. But you couldn't do anything other than that on the Sabbath because it was considered doctoring or something along those lines, a type of work, and it was forbidden. You couldn't make them any better. You could improve their situation. Now, I want you to just think about the irony of that. The Sabbath was established to honor God. The God who identifies himself the way we read in Psalm 103 this morning, as gracious and merciful, as slow to anger, full of compassion. That's who the Sabbath was intended to honor. A merciful, compassionate, loving, gracious God. And they had so contorted the law at this point that helping someone in need was now illegal. The way you honored God was not to do what he does. They had outlawed grace and they had outlawed mercy and they had outlawed love and they convinced themselves that somehow this honors God. And Jesus understood this and so he, what does he do? Being a great leader, he avoids the conflict, right? No, he doesn't avoid the conflict. He invites the man right up to the front of the room. He invites him right up to the front of the room. He knows what the Pharisees are thinking. He knows what they're looking for him to do. And he knows exactly how they're going to respond when he does it. But Jesus refuses to avoid doing what's right in order to avoid conflict. Refuses. There's a little leadership principle in here. True leaders do not avoid doing what is good and what is right simply because someone doesn't like it. If you're a leader somewhere, you need to mark that in your memory. True leaders, godly leaders, do not avoid doing what is good and what is right just because somebody doesn't like it or just because somebody isn't going to react well to it. Sometimes doing what's right is worth the fallout. That's the bottom line. And so Jesus addresses it. He calls the man up the front, and he asks a question to the room. He says this, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Oh, man, what a question. It goes right at the heart of what's going on here. 
and he sets them into a corner that there's no way for them to get out of. He asks them a question. Let's break it down. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Well, that seems obvious, right? I mean, nobody is going to argue. Well, yeah, it's the Sabbath. We ought to hurt people. Nobody's going to make that argument, right? The obvious answer is, well, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But if they say it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and he heals a man with a withered hand, now they've got to make the argument in order to execute their plot, they have to make the argument that somehow healing a man with a withered hand is doing harm. And that's a a, a non-seller, right? Even dumb people aren't going to go for that one, right? It's not going to happen. Is it lawful to save life or to destroy it? This is this man's right hand. Luke's a doctor. He's the only one who tells us it's his right hand. That was a big deal in those days. His livelihood and his ability to work and all these things depended on his right hand. Jesus was, in a real sense, about to restore this man's life to him in a very practical way. And yet the Pharisees are sitting there plotting to destroy Jesus' life. And so Jesus says, you tell me what's right. To save somebody's life on the Sabbath or to destroy it? Because he's about to save this man's life and they're plotting to destroy his while accusing him of violating the Sabbath. They're actually violating the Sabbath. Their hypocrisy, right out in front. And Jesus waits for their answer. I love that part. He looks around. What's your answer? He gives them a minute. They have no answer. And so Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. And this man who's had a withered hand for who knows how long, stretched out his hand and it's whole and everybody sees it remarkable remarkable who can do that only Jesus can do it and there's no question about whether it actually happened nobody questioned it because it was real and it was clear to everybody there let me point out one other thing it was an incredible thing to say to somebody who had a withered hand Stretch out your hand. You think of all the ways Jesus could have healed this man, right? He could have just healed his hand and said, look down, you're, you're whole. But he doesn't. He didn't unilaterally heal him. He requires him to exercise faith. He says to this man who's never been able to stretch out his hand, stretch out your hand. And that man has to actually physically do something in response. He, he's requ- There's an act of faith that Jesus asks of him. Stretch out your hand. And when you do it, you're going to find that it's whole. Jesus has all the power and the intention to heal him, but this man has to stretch out his hand and to exercise his faith to trust Jesus can do what he calls him to do. The man acts in faith, and the moment he does, he's healed. And it's a living illustration of what happens to every single sinner who's ever saved. Somebody comes along into our world and proclaims to us the gospel of Jesus and tells us to do what we have absolutely no power in and of our own self to do, to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus. We have no more ability in our own humanity to do that than a man with a withered hand had to stretch out his hand. We have no ability to do that. The only way we can do it is for God to do something inside of us to give us that ability to do it the moment we choose to exercise that faith. And that's what happened to the man with the withered hand. And that's what happens to every sinner who repents. 
Somebody comes along and presents the gospel and says, believe the gospel, repent of your sin, and trust Jesus. And there's a crisis of faith. Is he, is, he, is he trustworthy? Can he save me? Will he save me? And we make a choice. Yes, I'll do that. And the moment we act, we're able to do it. Not because we're able to do it, but because enables, God enables us to do it. He works a miracle in us. He works a miracle in us. Your salvation is a miracle from God, just like that man's withered hand is a miracle from God. And no ability to save yourself. No ability to repent. No ability to believe the gospel. Except that God gave you the ability. Praise God for his compassion and his mercy that would heal a withered hand and that would heal a withered soul like mine and yours. Well, the story ends with a glorious healing. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Such a sad epitaph to a story. To see something like that happen and the only thing that you could come away with is anger. The word fury is translated here, fury. It literally means to take leave of one's senses. To be swept up in irrational anger. These men were out, they, they were out of their minds with anger because Jesus had just violated the Sabbath in their minds and it just exposed their hypocrisy for everybody to see. And they've determined now he's got to be killed. There is no other course. We've got to find a way to destroy this man. If there ever was a cancel culture, it was going on there. They were going to cancel Jesus. Well, you say, so what? Why have you taken all of our time to go through this? They say in preaching, you should always answer, so what? So I'm going to answer, so what, in one slide for you today. How about that? I think these things are obvious. You can just go ahead and put them all up there, Tina, if you will, because our time is up. But most of these are obvious, right? What do we take from these stories? What is, what is, what's the application? Well, the first is no day is off limits for meeting human needs. There's no day that's so sacred that we can't care for the genuine needs of a human being. Not the Sabbath, not the Lord's Day, not Monday through Saturday or Sunday. It's always right to care for human needs and to show mercy and compassion on people when it's needed. Secondly, blindly observing religious rules without a heart of love is useless. We talked about this last time. Going to church, reading your Bible, praying, whatever it is you do is a religious sort of rule. If it's divorced from a heart of love for God and love for people, it's pointless. It serves no purpose whatsoever. Legalism, it binds us to trivialities and it blinds us to human needs. That's what we see in the Pharisees. They're absolutely committed to trivialities. And they're absolutely blind to the genuine needs of people. Legalism does that every time. And then finally, it's entirely possible for us to believe we're defending God's truth when in reality we are the worst violators. That's what's going on with the Pharisees. They genuinely believe they're defending God's truth. But it's hard to read these accounts and come to any conclusion other than they're the worst violators of it. Is there a shadow of that in your world? Is it possible that you could be deceived about something that you've just dug your heels in on 
your own interpretation, not necessarily God's truth. I don't know how God would apply these things to your life. This is the things that he brought to my mind, at least, as I was reading these texts. Let's pray that he would, by his spirit, apply them personally to each of us. God, you, by your spirit, we pray, would drive this truth home or these truths home into our own hearts. Lord, I don't know what's going on in the hearts and minds and thoughts of those who are in this room or those who are listening online, but you do. And I pray by your spirit, you would open their eyes to the application of this text. Lord, protect us from legalism. Lord, I understand for church people like me, legalism is a regular temptation. Help me never to confuse my own thoughts and my own opinions and my own conclusions with your divine decree. Lord, I pray that you'd help me and help everyone in this room to always understand that human needs matter. And that every day is the right day to show somebody mercy and compassion. Help us to be gracious with other people. And Lord, more than anything, help us to celebrate the fact that you've redeemed us, that you did for us spiritually what you did for this man physically. You gave us the ability to do what we could never do on our own, believe the gospel and repent and turn toward you. And every day you give us the ability to do what we can't do on our own, and that's to honor you with our lives and obey your word. So we're eternally grateful for these things, Lord. Even as we're mindful that there are many who still need to hear the gospel and many who still need to see that miracle come to play in their lives. But someone has to go and somebody has to tell them. Maybe you're calling us. Convict us, Lord, as we need it. Draw us to repentance where we need it. Change the course of actions in our life as they need to change. We pray that you do that right now by your spirit for your glory.